With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Why Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Why Whales, wherever in the world you are today. Uh, so it is July 13th, uh, lucky 13. Uh, Bitcoin is sitting around 30,500. It's been an amazing rally over the last really 60 days. You know, we've seen so much amazing energy come out of this. Um, people are stopping saying crypto winter. Um, so relatively short. I heard somebody say uh, it's crypto autumn. So we're, we're starting to see um, things thawing and, and kind of moving back and forth. Tons of innovation uh, around there. But I think there's a lot that we're going to talk about today that has to do with regulation. Um, because you really can't do much in development, you really can't do much in deployment, and you really can't talk to the retail traders at all until we understand what the rules of this game are going to be. Uh, and right now they're in flux, and there's a whole lot of articles that we're going to run through today. Uh, I have some amazing guests that I'm going to let go ahead and introduce themselves. So we'll start with Abe and go from there. All right. Thank you for that intro, Jay. Uh, my name is Abraham. I am the head of ecosystems at YWills, and I sit within the labs division, sort of an incubator of ideas that are spurred up from our community members of 1,300 uh, CEOs and chairmen around the world. Um, currently, we are building a platform that onboards businesses into the metaverse in stealth mode, MVP coming soon. So stand by, everyone. Awesome. Jeffrey. Hey, guys. Great to connect or reconnect. My name is Jeffrey Uba. I'm a director within Galaxy Digital's advisory practice. And so I cover everything Web3, Web 2.5 to Web3. So that includes things like uh, gaming, both Web2 gaming, Web3 gaming. That includes 3D content creation, uh, NFT ecosystems, and all of the above. And so really great to, really great to be here and really excited about the conversation. Excited to have you. Florian. Hey guys, uh, super happy to be here. I'm Florian um, from Common Ground. Uh, we're building the Web3 communication platform for communities. Um, I'm a lawyer by trade, so I also do uh, some advo advocacy in, in the European ecosystem, talking to the European regulator um, to make sure that crypto, Web3, now even Web4, I don't know if you guys heard it, is going to be a good thing in Europe. So uh, that's me. Thanks for having me. Or, you know, listen, let's start, let's get Web3 established and then we can start working on to four and five and six. But, uh, you know, I, we, we, we still haven't gotten out IP, uh, IP6, so we're still on IP4. So there's there's still a lot of upgrades that have to happen. Um, let's go ahead and kick this off. Uh, in Web3, uh, which is the one we're still currently working on today, um, AI is, is absolutely part of the next iteration of the Internet. And so I think Elon, who likes to make some big, big splashes, uh, likes to throw some big amounts of money into some projects that probably would take, uh, in most cases, years to develop. He can accelerate that with, with his uh, network uh, and his stockpile of cash and resources around there. So he's launched X.ai. Uh, this is not a uh, part of any of his existing uh, X dots, uh, or, you know, what is, what is Twitter now relabeled? The X dot app. Uh, this is an entirely new AI based division. And the quote is that he is to try to understand the true nature of the universe. Um, it sounds a little like, uh, um, you know, uh, 
sounds like a movie, sounds a little bit um, abstract, and that's very Elon-esque. Uh, he has hired some extremely uh, competent people in the AI field. Uh, he has, uh, quote-unquote, been uh, acquiring hardware for quite a while behind the scenes. And I think it's relevant to note uh, that he already has a massive AI team uh, at SpaceX. He has a massive AI team at Tesla. Um, and so he's been a big proponent of the government to try to regulate um, and really understand uh, AI for quite a while. Abe, you've been following this for a minute. What do you, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I think there's there's good and bad sides to this. Um, I think we'll start to learn a little bit more as as news and information starts rolling out. Um, but I'm not sure if I'm comfortable as the bad side with Elon being um, being the chair and running this, um, given his recent operations. Um, but I do have a concern with the risk of control of power. Um, so I think another entrant into the space might give a little bit of a balance or a battle. Um, so I think that's the good side of this um, because, you know, is it going to be concentrated with corporate power and then is, there, is it going to fall into a concentration with just a few governments? Um, I think this is a really um, sensitive space that we have to operate in. And so those are my, those are my initial thoughts. Awesome. Jeffrey. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, with, with Twitter, especially it's very clear and some of the restrictions that Elon has now instituted in, in terms of scraping, you know, that historical database for uh, feeding other LLMs, the the real competitive moat and competitive advantage is going to be how much information, structured or unstructured, are proprietary to individual organizations. And so, yeah. I suspect it, it's almost reflective of a trend of if you have a lot of data. If you have a massive data set that has been processed or hasn't been processed, you are, it's going to become incumbent upon you to augment that data with some type of AI driven components such that you yourself control not only the inputs, but also the outputs in terms of who has access to it and who can derive insights or analytics or, you know, data points that can be used for business or economic or regulatory decisions. And so you know, I think this is kind I think that's. Yeah, that's so relevant the way you put it, because with the combination of having Twitter and and also like really think about he's got, you know, millions of Teslas that are out on the road, you know, yeah. with cameras doing so many things yeah. that totally. Twitter is is really the, mo the, the first alert system around the world. <laughs> I don't care what other social media platforms exist. You know, they know about every incident, you know, traffic accident, like anything that happens, you know, in real time. Uh, and, and Elon has proven to be probably one of the best users of AI because, you know, the Tesla self-driving, while it's not perfect, is way more advanced than anything else out there. Uh, we're seeing SpaceX rockets uh, land themselves, and there's no one even close. The European Space Agency essentially doesn't even have a rocket anymore, and Elon is, you know, uh, moving in vastly faster iterations of his thanks to AI and everything else. Foreign, uh, what's your thoughts around this? I feel... Like Elon is playing catch up, which is funny because he is such a, you know, leading thinker in, in all these categories. But then I think he was sort of surprised by the fast adoption of open AI. Um, obviously, the acquisition of Twitter was definitely driven by this, you know, uh, I think, desire to possess a data source like Twitter. So I'm sure he has been planning this move for a while, but i I do feel there is a little bit of playing catch up. And what I'm way more excited about than XAI is what the open source space is producing for uh, large language models, right? We've seen Falcon 40 billion, which was uh, produced by Abu Dhabi. 
which is interesting. Uh, we see other models um, performing really well on Hugging Face that are open source. So um, I feel Elon has lost a little bit of of leadership here, which uh, is surprising given everything that you said. He's such a big AI um, heavy user in in Tesla and so on. So just excited to see how this will uh, play out. Uh, what I found a bit lame was him sort of pushing this narrative of let's, uh, you know, impose a moratorium on AI development, which he did, you know, in this open letter, uh, sort of pushing government to regulate because it felt like, well, he just wants to catch a break in order to catch up with everybody. So, yeah, I got mixed feelings on Elon. when it comes You know, to and this. I'll give him just a little bit of credit. He did put the first $500 million into open AI, which was designed to be, you know, open source and, and everything else. Um, and, and somehow uh, they, they converted that to a for-profit and, and then turned around and sold it to Microsoft. And he was very vocal about, um, you know, suing uh, open AI for, for that move. So it may not be as much catch up as it will. It is catch up. Uh, but it's because, you know, he, he put money in and it went to the wrong, you know, he didn't want Microsoft. I, he never would have approved Microsoft acquiring that. And, and we've actually seen some, some really significant deprecation of, uh, chat GTP since Microsoft has now gotten their hands in it. I guess it comes down to incentive, right? What's his incentive here? Yeah, well, he, he he figures he he figures out incentive after he figures out what he wants to do. It seems like so. Jumping over, uh, I, there's an, uh, you know some some big moves, and we're talking about IP and and access. I, is let's talk about Microsoft um, yet again. So Microsoft is trying to acquire Activision, um, and, and instead of me trying to explain this article, Jeffrey, why don't you go ahead and go through this because this is exactly what you do every day. Yeah, no, for sure. And so you know this this Activision. This Activision deal has been in the works for quite a while now, and it really is part of Microsoft's strategy to better compete with Sony Interactive Entertainment, who, you know, won the previous console generation, won the console generation uh, before that, and is on track to win the current console generation. And so I think Microsoft's primary thesis is we need more studios producing uh, video games that already have large install bases that, you know, we can further monetize, perhaps incorporate into our own kind of Netflix-like games as a service um, platform and take it from there. There's a lot of concern in the industry that this deal isn't good for gamers and players and the ecosystem as a whole based on the treatment of and really the you know, the, the productivity and the execution of a lot of the current studios under Microsoft's purview. So, for example, Microsoft acquired uh, a game development studio called Bethesda back in, I believe, 2020 for $7.5 billion, which I, at the time was either the first or the, the, the second largest transaction in video game history. And that company has yet to produce a new video game in that same time period. And so the upcoming title is, is called Starfield, which may release in 2024, may release in 2025. But there's an undercurrent by the community that, you know, this acquisition will create a little bit of a chilling effect when it comes to really creative, innovative, you know, game design, game development in the near term, which depending on how you look at it, could be a good thing or could be a bad thing for the average gaming consumer. 
you know, and as an M&A guy, you, you understand that, you know, the, the challenges of when you have a transition like this, the teams that are incentivized to work for, for their stock prices, they're incentivized to work for, you know, the, the, the revenues of which their games would go. Suddenly, you know, you're getting an EBITDA of, you know, a few years. Um, and there's a lot of the team that will just say, you know, hey, I'm cool. I don't want to work for Microsoft. I don't want to work for big tech. Um, you know, they, they acquired Skype. And, you know, when COVID came down, the fact that Zoom, you know, took off by multiples of 100 and no one in, in Skype, which has been around forever, like nobody cared to use it for, for education or for anything else, just kind of showcases that doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter how many machines that you have out in the world. You know, if you're not a good innovator and you're not a good marketer, which Microsoft is not anymore, um, you really can hurt some of these products no matter how uh, futuristic they are and, and how good of teams that they had when they were acquired. Yeah. Aber Foreign, any comments on, on, uh, on this? Not really from my side, um, but uh, it's it's really questionable whether we should allow you know big corporates to sweep up uh, complete markets like this. So um, I'm definitely pro more competitive policies here. That's my general stance. Um, yeah, that's yeah, that's going to be my same too. Is you know now it sounds like we have three big players in the gaming industry. And it's Tencent, I think it's number one, Sony, and now Microsoft. So what does that mean for? the user experience and for competition speaking. Yep, absolutely. Um, so uh, we're just going to be around all over the place. So Bank of America is stating that they are not directly closing uh, accounts that are linked to Coinbase. Um, there was a number of users saying, hey, my account at, at, at um, Bank of America was closed. And the reason stated is because it's it was linked to cryptocurrency trading, um, meaning that they had, you know, when you have a Coinbase account, you can link your bank accounts, so you can move money both in and out relatively native. It's generally through their, uh, their, their ACH uh, platform. So it, it, it goes relatively quickly, it can take a couple hours, a couple of days, depending on the amount. Um, but, but, you know, people were complaining on Twitter that this was happening. Uh, Brian Armstrong ran a, a poll. Um, it showed that most people, it was not happening in a broad way, but it was, you know, a lot of people said, yes, it, it did happen. Uh, Bank of America, you know, said, no, they're not doing it. Um, I, I believe that they are. <laughs> I think that this sounds like something that they would do. Um, so foreign, you know, you, as a lawyer, you know, what's your thoughts on, on some, you know, this anti-competitive nature here? I mean, let me first share my European view here, because uh, I, I guess that's that's something I can contribute here, which is that in Europe, this is a really known problem, in particular for companies. Um, I know that it's also happening for consumers that banks close accounts where there is just a lot of you know crypto related activity on. What I find just as drastic is that nowadays uh, in 2023, when you think that, OK, the EU has passed, you know, comprehensive legislation on crypto. It's assumed to become a major industry in Europe. Banks are aping in, you know, all these things. But startups still have a hard time to find a bank that is willing to open a bank account for them. If in your sort of, you know, company purpose, you mention that you are touching cryptocurrencies. So today as a, as a crypto related or Web3 startup, you still try to avoid the appearance of having anything to do with crypto. Banks still believe that it's shady business, that it's money laundering, terrorism financing. And um, that's pretty depressing and just shows how much banks need the competition and the disruption from that very sector in order to become more business and, and future friendly, I would say. You know, and, and I completely agree with, with a number of things you just said. I mean, it's, it, this is the next evolution of banking. 
And the first, you know, you know, major institution that adopts you know, blockchain technology, and I'm not saying, you know, adopts cryptocurrencies, because um, I think most cryptocurrencies are, are relatively garbage, um, but adopts blockchain into the way that they operate and, op- and, and opens up to a more free and fair market, I think is going to have a, a vastly uh, bigger advantage than the rest of their competition that is just reliant on the old SWIFT system and being able to say, you know what, I'm just going to close you down. Uh, I'm going to restrict access. I'm going to do these types of things. Um, we see it quite often, you know, as CEO of Y Whales, when we, when we, when we want to open a bank account, we do it in pairs. Um, because if you're going to go through the pain of a, of a six plus month process and that's what it can take, you know, you might as well go ahead and open two of them. Uh, because, you know, we had a, a great account, took us uh, six, seven months to open at Silvergate. Uh, and thankfully we had a backup because when things went bad, um, we didn't have six months. Uh, to get another account open, and we were able to transfer funds, you know, preserve investor investors' um, capital, and and you know, there you go. But it is that hard to work in this industry right now. It is crazy. What I'm really stoked about is um, the the future, really, where you can have a Gnosis safe uh, multi-sig wallet um, on chain, and then you know, attach legacy payment channels to it. But the the multi-sig is your main account. Um, there is a company called Monarium from Iceland, uh, which is offering basically IBANs for multi-sigs. So you can actually send out and receive um, euro uh, payments uh, from your from your safe multi-sig through Monarium. Um, and now uh, Gnosis is actually offering credit cards called uh, Gnosis Pay, which allow you to actually spend the money directly on your multi-sig. They've partnered with a company called SaltPay, which is a global payments processor. Um, and the, the, like the mind-blowing thing to me is that you can define spending rules for these different credit cards as an organization, for example, um, and uh, you know, then have employees have you know a monthly budget of a thousand bucks, and then you know the CEO maybe a bit more. So you can have these really intricate organizational rules mapped onto the credit cards through your multisig. Like that's the kind of stuff I want to do when when I think about you know digital banking, and that's what the crypto sector is actually bringing now. So um, the banks will have that competition really, really soon. Gnosis Pay is launching next week in Paris at FCC. So yeah, stuff is getting nice. real finally. Awesome. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I appreciate bringing that up. We'll definitely have to test that one out. Um, moving over to some uh, music news, uh, Snoop Dogg and uh, A16Z uh, have partnered up. So Andreessen Hortz has led a $20 million round into the Web3 music platform Sound. Um, he's partnered with uh, Aston Kutcher uh, from Sound Ventures. And the entire goal is to disrupt traditional music streaming revenue models uh, by allowing existing artists to mint their songs as NFTs. Uh, and then sell those to directly to fans. Uh, they've been around since uh, 22. Uh, they've generated about 5.5 million, which is you know almost nothing in, in the global scheme of things. Uh, but I think it's interesting. And, and you know, I, I've talked to maybe a half dozen startups that have been working on this problem that that all have the same solution that they're going to allow you know direct access through smart contracts and NFTs. Yeah. Uh, that, that someone's going to mint their song and and then push it out there, and people are going to buy it. 
Um, and I really do struggle with adoption on this because we, we saw this before. We've seen Napster come out and say, hey, you know, here's this platform that people can do it. It, it, it breeds theft. It breeds copyright infringements. Um, because if you don't have a centralized source like an Apple or a Spotify or Pandora that's kind of managing things, um, you know, and even SoundCloud has, you know, the ability to kind of take stuff down. If we're talking blockchain, once it's up, like how do you take down all the Britney Spears songs that, that some random user put up uh, and they're immutable. So, you know, again, Florian, as, as a lawyer, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, does this actually have legs or is it a little bit of uh, blockchain pixie dust that they're throwing out here? Well, I have, I have conflicting thoughts on it. First of all, the positive view I have is that it's a good signal for consumer crypto applications, right? Because um, in the past, there has been a complete lack of funding for consumer great applications in crypto. Um, I think all the VC money and A16Z was a big part of that, uh, went just to infrastructure and protocols, which is cool, but it just won't bring mainstream adoption to the sector. And I think after a decade plus, we just need some real consumers in this industry also to be more legitimate for regulators, right? Otherwise, they would just regulate us to death. So I think in terms of uh, crypto consumer adoption, this is a very positive signal. Um, obviously common ground is also building a consumer grade application. So, you know, I hope this gives us some, some sort of credibility, um, that now it's the time for consumer grade investments. Um, on the other hand, you know, I agree with you, uh, Jay, that there is not really a, a recipe that guarantees us that this is going to work now specifically for music. Um, I've recently talked to uh, a big record label, um, in, in music and, you know, they are looking at this, but they are not sure that this is actually going to work. So they are sort of still on the sidelines with this. Um, I know that um, this is one of the oldest ideas in crypto. Actually, in 2016, Consensus was working on a platform exactly like this. It was called Ujo Music. Mm -hmm. um, Imogen Heap was releasing an album on it, and it just didn't go anywhere. So I think there is a lot of sort of failed attempts at doing it. And um, you know, looking at SoundCloud, which was sort of, uh, still is a German uh, a company, one of Germany's biggest successes in sort of digital platforms, they've completely failed. You know, um, they never found a business model that actually works. Um, they're really struggling. And so it's, yeah, big question mark here whether, whether Sound XYZ has found a, a viable business model, but I do, I do wish them the best. <laughs> yeah. Je yeah. Jeffrey, this is right in your, your wheelhouse. It, it, it definitely is, and it's a it's a very tough model to to be successful with because you're 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 trying to solve two product market fit questions at the same time. The first is how do you get actual creators, musicians, etc., to agree to participate on this platform, and the friction surrounding the education of using this platform versus going a more traditional route. And then the second is the most important piece, how do you get actual consumers and users of music in general, but these artists in particular, to want to jump onto this platform versus you know, showing their allegiance or showing their you know, amount of community to a specific artist on the, the myriad other channels that we do have available. And so I've seen this very similar to you, Jeff, I've seen this model you know, come through on several different occasions. I think trying to attack it from an infrastructure level, um, I think does make more sense, but I'd be curious to know what, what the unit economics actually look like 
um, for a business like this. Yeah. I like, like when I think of this, I, and I always refer back to title, you know, like all the right people launched, you know, the, the, Hey, we're going to be different because we're going to have the highest fidelity music, same price or whatever in the world they were doing. Um, and they've, they've since gone to this freemium model. Like they, they're struggling with app downloads. They're struggling to do this and, and there's no blockchain in there. So, you know, to me, until you kind of have one of the leading players say, you know, here's how we're going to, you know, we're going to use this to solve copyright. We're going to use this to solve royalties. Like if Spotify was to say, hey, we're incorporating blockchain technology um, for royalty distribution, like to me that you like stop the presses. There you go. It's now now it's going to happen. And other people can kind of copy that formula and make it happen to start from the ground up and saying we're starting with 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 Snoop um, and great, nothing against him, but I mean, you know, he's still just one player in this massive industry that has systems, processes, and tools that exist already. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's, you know, 20 and $20 million, you know, doesn't even make a dent, um, in what it takes yeah. to employ one of these things. Yeah. And, and I think Jay, you're saying the, you're saying the, 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 the loud part very quietly or the quiet part out loud. It, it feels like when it comes to the application of new technologies into the music industry in particular. There's there's some pretty active behind the scenes suppression going on to not disrupt existing, you know, flows of value or flows of capital that have been in existence for the last 30, 40 years. And, you know, one of the things that this actually leads me to think about is, you know, a couple of months ago, there was a lot of press and a lot of media attention to the fact that AI was being used to create, you know, essential replicas of Drake's uh, music portfolio and songs that were actually very good. And what surprises me today is we haven't seen a single, you know, new piece of work generated by AI that has been released, you know, since that time, right? The technology still exists. The portfolio, the portfolios of music still exist, but the application isn't there. And I'm guessing that something going on is going on behind the scenes to put my tinfoil hat on to say, hey, you know, we're going to shut this down the second that we see it so that it doesn't, you know, disrupt our current modus operandi. Yeah. Uh, like I said, yeah. always follow the money. Um, jumping uh, to the next one, uh, GamerCraft uh, raised $5 million for an AI-powered skill-based gaming platform. Uh, Jeffrey, you're going to have to explain this one to me. Yeah, for sure. So I, I don't know how many of you guys are, are gamers. I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty uh, frequent gamer myself, especially online shooters. And so my game of choice is, is Overwatch, um, which is like a 5v5 shooter. Long story short, one of the biggest issues in online games today, so think uh, Fortnite, think um, Counter-Strike Go, is the fact that you usually don't have a great experience playing these games for one very specific reason in that you can't find the right set of other folks to play with that are within your range from a skill set perspective. So if I come into a game, what usually happens is the competitors around me are either extremely terrible, which means that, you know, I would just roll over them or a person would just roll over the entire team. That does not make for an enjoyable experience. On the flip side, if you jump into a game and everyone is so much better than you, that's also a very unsatisfactory experience. And so there's a Goldilocks zone of, all right, these players are good enough for this to be competitive, but not so good for this to be, you know, disenchanting for me. And so this is where 
GamerCraft comes in, where that challenge that a lot of the AAA developers and publishers are experiencing are solved by this platform. And it's used to make sure that you're properly segmented with folks of your e-group skill set. The other advantage of this platform is that, you know, from a from a cheating standpoint, you can actually remove, identify and remove cheaters and actually kind of segregate them into their own kind of gaming instance so that all the cheaters play by themselves, all the folks that are of the, the S-class level play with each other, all the A through C-class play with each other, and it becomes an overall kind of great gaming experience for, for everyone. So this one is definitely very, very near and dear to my heart. Um, it also reflects the fact that, you know, the private capital markets are a, a tough place to be, especially with, you know, where things on the traditional and kind of the Web3 side have been. And, you know, very excited to get this one over the finish line. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really good, interesting use for AI. And I can speak from experience. I, I like to play uh, Call of Duty with with my two boys. Uh, I've got a 16-year-old and an 11-year-old, and, and they're both vastly better than I am. Um, and and when my uh, my 11-year-old uh, literally just last night said, oh, dad, why don't you be the host? Which means that I, it's going to be my you know, my skill level that dictates what party we went into. Um, and, you know, I think I, uh, we finished uh, the one game I had, you know, like 24 kills that the next top person of any other on any other team was maybe, you know, 30, 35, and he had 124. Um, and, and it was like everyone on the other team was just rage quitting. He was that much better than everyone <laughs> else. They play competitive. And let me tell you the next, That's the next true. game that it put, put us into, like, I think I got like three kills and he was on par with everyone else. So it seems like some of this technology exists, but it may be proprietary. And by the way, that was an Activision product. So, so that's yeah. Microsoft's acquiring back from the earlier article we talked about. Um, but I think these are really good use cases that, that will extend far beyond gaming, um, and into, you know, various other aspects, you know, that, that potentially could be there, such as, you know, online dating and, and really starting to define compatibilities, uh, that, that may be nuanced and, and something that you're not going to compete a, you know, 50, 50 you know, question survey to, to answer anymore. Yeah. Love that. Um, so jumping over, uh, Binance Labs, uh, who Binance is not short of anything in the news right now. Uh, they're investing $15 million in another Web3 uh, gaming startup, uh, Xterio. Um, Abe, you want to walk, uh, walk us through this one? Because you've been following it pretty closely. Yeah, so they invested $15 million, and this is supposed to be a, um, a play to earn, I believe it is. Or um, Sorry, actually, you might have to take this one, Jay. Yeah, so this is um, Binance Labs. Uh, so it's a Web3 gaming platform and publisher. Uh, they're introducing the integration of artificial intelligence uh, and these Xterra tokens. Uh, they're facing, obviously, regulatory scrutiny. Um, and Binance Labs is uh, still continuing to invest, um, growing their assets of investments to right now $9 billion. Does this sound familiar to... Uh, to anyone else we know, we know uh, FTX Alameda, um, so free to play gaming platforms. So uh, gaming as a service, uh, I think that's very interesting. We've seen kind of the, the play to earn, play to live model, and it, it seems like they're kind of going through and creating <laughs> toolkits and creating platforms uh, for this. So I, my my number one concern is is Binance investing in anything. Uh, the, the secondary concern is you know quite simply, you know. Is is play to earn, play to live? You know, does it have a long life cycle, or is it kind of something from the last bull, you know, bull run that just kind of has petered out? Yeah, and maybe I mean, maybe I can. Yeah, sorry. No, please, yeah, please go. Please ahead. go ahead. 
Um, well, I just can add that uh, Sega um, just uh, less than a week ago announced that they are scraping their efforts to uh, publish a play-to-earn game using crypto. Uh, so this is the exact opposite move to Binance, which is interesting because Sega obviously has uh, a long-standing experience in gaming. They know how to build successful games and they've had it under development for a year or so and then scraped the efforts because uh, I think it wasn't convincing to them. Me personally, um, I'm not an avid gamer uh, in this stage of my life, so uh, I shouldn't uh, judge it, but uh, I just don't see uh, play to earn having a big future. What I think uh, really the role of crypto and Web3 is going to be in, in gaming is this ability to make characters and you know items transferable between worlds, between games. Um, funny enough, that's exactly what the EU is going to pass some regulation on <laughs> pretty soon. They call this Web4. Uh, I don't know why this needs any regulation. Uh, I just think this needs industry standards. But overall, I think that's that's what excites me. This idea that um, you know I can transfer money or I can transfer game items or characters into different games from different publishers even. And funny enough, this is how Ethereum was founded, right? Uh, Vitalik had um, a character in World of Warcraft, which Blizzard decided to nerf, to kill. And that moment, he decided to build Ethereum because he was like, it's not possible that I don't have ownership over my digital gaming assets. And so, uh, yeah, I think this is just a really powerful narrative. You know, you, yeah. you said a quote, and it's pretty funny. Um, and I heard somebody recently say, you know, America will, will rush to innovate. Uh, Asia will rush to build and Europe will rush to regulate. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's kind of exactly a very different standards. But Jeffrey, on, on this one, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I, ha I have a couple of thoughts on this. Um, I guess first and foremost, I tell everyone this much, uh, I'm sure my colleagues chagrin, I'm very much long-term bullish, short-term bearish on, you know, quote-unquote Web3 gaming, because I think we tend to we tend to miss the objective of gaming in the first place, which is to have fun either by yourself or with others. Right. And so, you know, whenever I look at new opportunities or, or new, you know, investments, I always try to understand, does this platform or this company have games that are out there that, you know, you can play? And are those same games fun? Like, can you look at a video on YouTube of somebody playing the game and you yourself see yourself playing the game itself? So that's kind of my first criteria when it comes to things like this. The other piece of it is I, I don't think that we'll get to the point where crypto is really well adopted until institutional um, until institutional institutionals get into the picture we and provide a little bit more certainty of, uh, as to this is right asset class. Yeah, right. that was me. No, that's, that's um, I can um, chime in. Oh, sorry. I, 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 I don't believe in the play to earn. I think I think once the incentive is taken away and the people have made their money, usually the first entrants um, that have come in, they move on. They move on to the next game where they can go and play to earn. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> I don't think that it's going to be a model that sustains itself. Um, but I, it's, it's it's interesting because yesterday I was reading an op-ed by Josh, escaping me his last name, but he's the CEO of Surreal Events. He was talking about how businesses should design their presence in the metaverse. And his, I think the headline was, look at gaming. Like the gaming, the stickiness factor of 
of how games are created um, to to just engage and to have fun. Like that's that's what really wins, both in the business aspect of immersive experiences and how I believe that the gaming industry for what they will actually uh, work out as well. Interesting. Um, so let's, let's jump into a little bit of, uh, uh, crypto news. Um, I think this is a big one that's making its rounds and there's a lot of FUD around it, uh, which is what <laughs> crypto and, and, uh, likes to do is create a bunch of unknowns and, and whatnot. Uh, Silk Road, which was the, I would say the original first mass use, uh, for Bitcoin, uh, you know, whether like them, hate them, you know, whatever the case is, uh, I think the reason why we have a Bitcoin e- ecosystem is because there was a use case. Uh, may have been illegal, illegal back then. Uh, it's clearly been cleaned up quite a bit since then. Uh, the Silk Road founder is in jail. However, the Silk Road founder had, um, you know, tens of thousands uh, of Bitcoins that that he had acquired. And, and I think that he had acquired them, you know, in the single digits to double digits, um, you know, back when Bitcoin was still ramping up, maybe uh, in the hundreds of dollars. Um, but the U.S. government has taken these. Uh, they have put, uh, I believe, the gentleman uh, in jail for two life sentences. Uh, for his for his role in this and um, and they're now going through and saying that they are this year they, through the end of this year uh, they're going to be selling these off there was a, a big uh, amount of fear that happened in the market where people were concerned that this was going to drive the price of Bitcoin down. Um, and I think they thought that the U.S. government was just going to create a large market sell order on, on Coinbase and hit sell and just drive, drive the price of it down to whatever, whatever people were willing to buy. Um, and that's not the case. Uh, we, we've since learned that these coins will be sold OTC. They will never hit the open market. Uh, the first tranche has already been sold, sold and moved. Uh, we do not have counterparty knowledge. Uh, we, we've, Try to figure out who uh, who bought them. I think we can take a few guesses based on uh, Fidelity and BlackRock and others that are the big buyers that have the cash to do so. Uh, and we don't know what price they bought them at, but the coins have already been transferred. They have moved wallets, uh, so the FUD on on it, you know, that's driving the price of Bitcoin down uh, certainly goes away. But I think it now increases, you know, these ETFs. Uh, and institutions that have acquired these uh, these bitcoins um, in, in a big way. Um, foreign, you're, you're, you're a Bitcoin guy. What's, what's your thoughts? Well, I just wanted to make the joke that we can now use Arkham to find out who the counterpart is. No. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Well done. <laughs> no, I mean, um, nothing really to add here. Um, I don't think it matters that the government is selling them off. Um, I'm actually, uh, impressed by their diamond hands. If anything, uh, they held onto them for a long time. Um, and yeah, other than that, I don't think this is uh, a bearish or bullish signal for Bitcoin. Uh, I am a believer in the long-term value of Bitcoin. Um, so yeah, just happy that there are more Bitcoins hitting the market. So good, good for us. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm surprised you're not holding on to it, to be honest with you. But yeah, you know what? I, I, they, 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 they just sold, uh, you know, almost 10,000 of them for, uh, $300 million. Yeah. Um, and we, we know where the U S uh, economy is right now. So that money is poof gone immediately. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree. Pretty it would have been much more worthwhile for them to hold on to them, you know, probably move them into treasury or do something like those lines. Yeah. Uh, but I'm going to go with, I, I don't care that the U S government, uh, owns or holds these things. So I, I agree with Florian. Let's, let's get them out into the open markets, uh, less central control, because I think that all that would happen is, you know, more nefarious things uh, can and would occur as time goes on. Um, let's let's continue on with uh, regulation. Uh, we'll, we'll keep going a little bit in the United States and foreign. I'm sure we'll have some uh, EU type things. Uh, so 
in, in a big news, um, U.S. Senator Cynthia Loomis uh, and, and Kathy Gilbrand, who have been, you know, I think some of the most vocal uh, U.S. towards the the regulatory adoption of cryptocurrencies, uh, doing, you know, so much to, you know, compared to Elizabeth Warren that just throws out some nonsense and, and says she hates it and it's terrible and it's for criminals. Um, and we're seeing a lot of good common sense uh, regulation coming through through uh, Cynthia and, and Kristen. Uh, so the new bill classifies most digital assets as commodities, so similar to gold. Uh, amidst these ongoing debates about the future of digital asset regulation, the bill aims to bring clarity to the industry, which we all need, uh, which is certainly uncertain about uh, whether this SEC or the CFTC should be overseeing these cryptocurrencies. Uh, I would would absolutely love to see this get away from the SEC. We've we have seen massive abuse uh, by Ginsler, um, you know, and flip flopping around in, in various aspects of this. I think the CFTC is the right choice at this point. Uh, if passed, the legislature would require crypto exchanges to keep customer assets in third-party trusts and prohibit proprietary trading. Um, and let's let's take a quick pause and, and see what they mean. The the concept of self custody is one of the most you know basic um, you know aspects of of Web three that you can you know not your keys not your crypto and what they're saying here is that these have to be held with authorized custodians. Um, so similar to a bank, uh, some sort of financial institution or registered investment advisor. So somebody would have to have a license to hold these. Uh, and and I, I don't agree um, that with it being 100%, uh, but I think there, there absolutely is a, is a need for majority of people to have an option to use a, a registered custodian that is not the exchange because we've seen what happens when the exchange goes down. Uh, you you kind of lose everything. So, um, you know, who wants to, who, who's uh, got some opinions on this? I mean, I can chime in from the European side where we have this regulation now, Mika, and we had delegations from the US coming to the European Commission asking them, how did you regulate it? What's Europe doing about it? And funny enough, um, just when, you know, um, the the sanctions uh, against Russian oligarchs uh, were being set up in the European Parliament because of the war, um, there was a sort of a half half year uh, uh, time where there was the danger that the European Parliament would actually make self-custody flat out illegal in Europe because self-custody has all these empowering features that benefit both, uh, you know, uh, law-abiding citizens, but also people who want to, you know, maybe evade sanctions and this and that. And it took um, the combined effort of the whole industry to get that idea out of the head of the, of the parliamentarians that self-custody should be banned. So, um, any attempt at reducing um, self-custody is, I think, akin to, you know, reducing some of the fundamental freedoms that Americans enjoy, that Europeans enjoy. So I think uh, that's something we need to preserve as a value. Um, and other than that, um, I think it's it's probably a good idea that the CFTC is getting more authority and the SEC less, just in terms of, you know, the competencies that we've seen over the past couple of years. But let's not forget that also the CFTC is responsible for Ooki DAO and the idea of, uh, you know, using this concept of an unincorporated, unincorporated association for DAOs and, and making all the token holders liable for, for the actions of a DAO. So I think both agencies have, have good and bad people. The SEC obviously has Hester Pierce, which, which is the crypto mom. She's pro-crypto. So you know, tough, tough to say without a clear rule book, which agency actually is making the better decisions. Yeah. And, and let's be clear, 
the U.S. is is really slacking and lacking from the rest of the world's perspective on on the adoption of blockchain technologies, <clears throat> whether that's cryptocurrencies, NFTs, or just anything around smart contracts. The United States is is you know gets a failing grade at this point um, for for wanting to educate uh, the staffers, wanting to educate the legislators on what these topics are, um, and really coming forth and drive and wanting to drive innovation away. Uh, from the United States. I, I know more founders uh, right now that are leaving, the, packing up their bags and moving their companies outside of the United States. Um, good, amazing projects that, that will absolutely succeed over time. Um, and I think that's a real failure of, of the U.S. And so I, I hope uh, that a little bit of this kind of helps settle that and allows, you know, some of those, those projects to stay, you know, the U- United States is, you know, we built uh, web one and web two, uh, and it's really sad to see kind of web three, just walking away. I know for, and it would, we'd all be thrilled to come visit you over in Europe and, and spend some more time there. Um, and I, we were just in Zurich and we were just shocked, um, by how opening and welcoming, welcoming the, the Swiss government was, uh, towards, you know, blockchain technologies and, and had real good common sense, you know, register regulation uh, that was very easy to follow and very easy to kind of interpret by, by uh, lawyers. Yeah, I think Switzerland is the last sort of libertarian government left in Europe. The rest is becoming, you know, way more <laughs> than China, if you if you want to be a bit uh, provocative okay. here. So um really happy that we have Switzerland. Um, they I'm also glad they are not part of the EU because they sort of preserve this idea of a, of a sort of liberal uh, liberal idea of regulation, which is becoming a rare commodity in this in this world. Robert. So jumping over, uh, we're going to go to Google's quantum computer, because I think this is just interesting. And so we, we talk a lot about AI, we talk about a lot of the things we do. Um, at the end of the day, it, it all revolves around computing computing processing power. Bitcoin uh, proof of work absolutely requires it. Um, every bit of gaming, you know, if we're going to go to cloud gaming for Jeffrey, we're going to we're going to need more more processing power. And we've been hearing about these quantum computers for a while. Um, Google, you know, again, mass amounts of money. They've been working in the AI space and the quantum computing space. Uh, you know, I've I've heard of them literally that there are. Uh, containers like at the bottom of the ocean that because it's using cooling that nobody really knows what it's doing they just dropped them down there for a few years to see what it's happening so this is something very near and dear to uh, what they do so the sycamore quantum computer uh has 70 operation is with 70 operational qubits uh i don't even know what that that number uh, equates to can perform certain calculations much faster than the most uh, traditional classical supercomputers um and the benchmark is calling for um random circuit sampling uh whatever that means so they're saying that they can take they can do in a couple seconds what traditional computers would take approximately 47 years um Abe, we spend a lot yeah. of time on on how we can process, you know, 3D and immersive environments, you know, using cloud, yeah. cloud this. I mean, we need a big jump in computing power, but with that comes, <laughs> Maybe not you know, thing. just the same amount of, of terrifying aspects of, of AI and everything else to be able to do these things. Yeah, this was an interesting article that I read too, and I, I, I dove into it to understand this a little bit more. Um, the question I had was, when is it fast enough? Like you're now doing something in seconds that a computer could do in 47 years, but yet this computer still has a lot of <clears throat> has a lot of issues with the environments. So what I understand is that these environments are super sensitive. 
Um, and th that's there's a lot of failures that come out with the processing power. So is this going to be a shift where, all right, we're now fast enough. And so let's really focus on the environment. I had no idea that they plunged these deep in the ocean, by the way. That sounds really uh, phenomenal. Yeah, there, there's a lot of these black boxes that the, that the big guys, when you've got so much money, they throw a bunch of hardware in there, they, they run the power to it, and then for cooling, they'll, they'll throw them at the bottom of caves, they'll throw them at the bottom of the ocean, um, so, and, and then, yeah, just see what happens. Yeah, what I understand, it has to be a fraction of a degree above absolute zero in order for this to just be optimized. Like, that's so specific. Among yeah, sounds, 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 I, I think I saw that that in one of the Transformer movies. So. <laughs> I, I, I guess I guess my question would be, you know, people typically don't engage in these types of endeavors, these really deep technological, you know, transformations without without some type of benefit. So for what purpose would we need that much compute resources would yeah, be my question. So I think it's really about uh, simulating quantum systems um, that this is really good for. And quantum systems is everything that's small. So, for example, for drug discovery, um, simulating, you know, pr uh, proteins or even, you know, smaller chemical compounds, there you can have quantum effects where this is really beneficial. Um, in order to break cryptography as we use it today on the Internet, you need to be able to run Shaw's algorithm, which is this, you know, factoring algorithm. And this will need millions of qubits, literally mm. millions. So um, we don't even know how to get there. This is really sort of far away. Um, and it's, yeah, nothing, I think, immediately threatening. But I think um, sort of using quantum computers to simulate quantum physics is going to be probably the first practical application, which we might see in a couple of years or decades. So it feels far away still, but glad to see progress being made here. Yeah, there's something I learned about crosstalk, which is the unwanted interaction between the quibits. And we're at 70. And so like the more quibits you have, uh, the more complex it is. And so if you're trying to get a million quibits, like that's quite something. Yeah, th this is going to be one of those things that that is going to come out of nowhere. Um, you know, yeah. AI was around for 30 years and, and nobody right. really paid attention to because it, it was, you know, barely useful and you had to be a programmer to understand it. And, and now schools have to ban it because it, it just it just one day just started to work. Uh, and I think we're going to see something similar to this. It's going to be all of our computers are going to be vastly outdated all of a sudden because, um, you know, they're, they're just so much magnitude slower. They're not able to, you know, host some new storage uh, facilities or whatever the case is. Um, Jumping a little bit back over to cryptocurrencies. Uh, so BlackRock, which is, you know, filed for an ETF, uh, they own, you know, quite a bit of Bitcoin. Um, and Vanguard is one of the second largest in the world. And they're taking a slightly different approach. Uh, they have now invested over $500 million into mining companies, Bitcoin mining companies. Uh, so they made a, a very large investment into Riot, one of the largest, uh, one of the largest uh, mining companies in the world. And I love this. I, I think this is, a, you know, so much better than just buying the raw Bitcoin um, because they're now making sure they're putting the investment to make sure that the Bitcoin network is up, stays up sure. and running, and they still get their Bitcoin uh, over the long term because they are the miners. They, you know, now doing it a few months before the uh, the halving probably won't look great on their balance sheet uh, in the near term. Uh, but I, I think it's great to be to, to see the institutions getting behind Bitcoin. Um, I, I I attended Ethereum Denver. I've attended. Uh, Bitcoin Miami, and I will say that they are just vastly different conferences with vastly different, uh, you know, attendees for the most part. Um, and, and Bitcoin really is, you know, 
has to have that heartbeat for the rest of the industry to survive, in my opinion. Um, Jeffrey, what's your thoughts? I agree. And I think that this is really the first domino that needs to fall prior to other, you know, non-traditional, you know, financial services companies and, and more consumer oriented companies to start embracing crypto as a method of payment. Um, I think about gaming all the time and how seamless it would be to be able to pay for Robux, for example, with Bitcoin or Ethereum versus using, you know, dollars on a credit card. I don't think that that paradigm can emerge until there is more institutional adoption, until that BlackRock ETF and some of the other ETFs that are being submitted are approved and are actively competing against each other. Yeah, fabulous. Um, and, and speaking of BlackRock, uh, you know they have filed their ETF. Uh, their ETF will use Coinbase as a custodian. Um, and so, hearing that that uh, Bank of America is closing uh, Coinbase uh, based, uh, bank, you know, linked accounts is is very curious uh, compared to BlackRock, the the largest uh, manager investment manager in the world, um, is is coming forward and using them. And you know, at this point, uh, Coinbase stock is in the toilet. I think it's ninety dollars. It IPO'd right around three hundred or something. Uh, so they've been struggling along with everything else. Um, but the the spot Bitcoin ETF that BlackRock has filed for um, gives regulators the ability to pool specific data, including uh, personal identifi- identifiable information, as well as customers' names and addresses uh, from the cryptocurrencies uh, that are involved. So I think that that's pretty interesting. And it's not, I mean, this is a regulated asset. Um, so it's it's very standard if you, if you invest with, uh, you know, Robinhood or, or E-Trade or anything else, the regulators have that same amount of access. Um, so it being in here, I think, is is a kind of a, a non-story. Um, but it you know, kind of goes back to a lot of people believing that Bitcoin is privacy. You know, It allows for kind of financial freedom. Um, I don't think anyone would ever confuse an ETF with, with spot Bitcoin custody. Uh, Jeffrey, what's your thoughts? I agree. I mean, you can't redeem the, the units of this trust for actual Bitcoin. And so you know, the fact that you are, your, your information is shared with whatever brokerage that you're using to purchase, you know, ETF, ETF units or ETF shares. It, it is, it is definitely a non-story um, in this case. Yeah, we'll get the, we'll get that established. Um, so uh, layer twos, uh, to me, I think are, are incredibly interesting. Uh, layer ones, uh, every single one of them are struggling. Uh, and one where the other Ethereum, you know, just it, it's vast amounts of upgrades and changes uh, over the last, you know, couple of years, but but still can't reach scaling speeds uh, to match Visa and everyone else. So layer twos are, are required. Um, we've seen StarkNet now. There's a lot of people that are very interested in this. Uh, they just got they just got the uh, community to approve uh, moving forward with their uh, Gory. Borelli, uh testnet. Um, so, and I, I just think it's interesting to watch that that 98% uh, of their active users voted to go forward. Um, and, and to me, these are these are going to be needed, and it's going to be a chain agnostic world. Uh, some people are going to use this, some people won't. At the end of the day, you have to be you know able to span a lot of these chains um, and get institutional adoption. Otherwise, you know they just sit there doing a bunch of nothing. Florian, what's your uh, what's your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I think layer twos are important. Um, obviously, the Ethereum ecosystem has decided to go all in uh, on layer twos. And one of the big reasons is to be just more apolitical as a settlement layer. Because uh, if nobody settles any, you know, uh, 
controversial transactions uh, on your layer one, uh, let's say, you know, prediction market that is being used as an assassination <laughs> marketplace, for example, which are things that have been floating as an idea in the crypto space since, uh, I guess, 10 years. But if they do it in layer twos and the layer two only borrows the security um, of, of some layer one, I think this is a politically stable and scalable solution um obviously it also helps with technical scalability and so uh, i think it's a uh, it's important um i don't know if we need as many layer twos as we're sort of seeing popping up today um i feel people are just vcs are allocating too much capital onto it because they don't know what else to fund i think they should fund crypto uh consumer crypto apps more uh, which I think they're they're not doing enough, but uh, yeah, it's layer twos uh, all the way at the moment. Um, yeah, I, I'm 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 fine with layer twos. Um, I'm even thinking about layer threes. Uh, I think this would also be a thing at some point. So yeah, and the Starkware guys are amazing people, like uh, Eli Ben Sassoon and Udi, which we see here on the pictures. They've been cornerstones of the of the market. And um, I think it was Eli who gave uh, Vitalik the idea to found Ethereum back in 2012 when, when Vitalik was traveling around the world. Um, so yeah, they are good people for sure. Yeah. I, I really, you know, I, it, it's so important to have this, but I also want to always state to people, these are like, if they say the word that these are in beta testing, I mean, they're almost still in alpha testing. Like this stuff is like bleeding edge technology. They're using new tech, new techniques to scale. Um, and, and the bridges don't work. Um, you know, there's, there's very few bridges. And I say that that's the two biggest issues in, in blockchain right now, bridges and wallets. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, this is, these are much needed steps. Um, but I always, you know, tell people before you go put a bunch of money or, or start utilizing these chains, no matter how cool or, or flashy they are, um, you know, really understand how early we are in the cycle of Web3 right now. Jeffrey, I'm sure you see a lot of this. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's something that, you know, we've been keeping a lot of attention on, but really picking the winners is is very challenging. And I, I definitely agree with Florian. I, I would love to see more investment in more consumer facing projects that are out there. It's always a question of, okay, what is the size of the TAM from the perspective of these investors? And until we can get that institutional adoption piece, it'll be hard to really come up with a meaningful TAM for, for that to happen. Perfect. So with the uh, with the thawing of crypto winter, that means all of the uh, YouTubers and and uh, <laughs> you know um, fortune tellers have shown back up, and we're now they're now starting to say Bitcoin will be at one hundred twenty thousand by the end of next year. Um, I, I I think these are all you know gambling predictions at best. Nobody understands where the market's going to be, uh, where regulation is going to go. Um, I love the thought of $120,000 Bitcoin, um, but that would put a, the market cap at, I mean, geez, just the market cap for Bitcoin alone um, would be something equivalent to like five or, or six trillion dollars, uh, which is more than double the highest the entire cryptocurrency market has reached so far to date. Um, I don't think that we have the... the uh, the, the fiat on and off ramps. Um, and we certainly do not have the, the use cases for, for Bitcoin to hit that much. So unless, um, you know, I, we know we're going to see a bump from the halving, um, you know, that's all that's going to go there. But I mean, still to go from 30,000 right now to 120,000, 
Um, that, that, that's a big hurdle. And remember, during the last bull run, we were being told a million dollars by the end of last year. So it's, you know, I don't, I don't put too much uh, into these. Um, Abe, what do you, you watch all these? Yeah, no, same with you. I think it's the gambling prediction. Um, but Florian looked like he was going to jump in there. I, I think it's really hard to predict what it's going to be. And I think the market is totally different now with institutional investors now pulling in. And then you have family offices and, and particularly coming in from Europe and Asia as well. So I think this market is going to look different than, than what we just experienced. I think there are two strong arguments to make for Bitcoin, why it will reach this uh, sooner rather than later, and probably even more, which is that um, from an American perspective, Bitcoin is the only um, commodity like cryptocurrency, for sure. It's the only one that's not even being discussed as whether it could be a security. Ethereum very much is. So there is a scenario where, you know, in the next election, we have a president Warren or whatever, and she will, you know, regulate everything to death, including Ethereum, and only Bitcoin will stand. And I think uh, the other sort of bull signal for Bitcoin is that um, there's sort of a new community forming that is dethroning um, the old authorities of Bitcoin, the block streams and, uh, yeah. you know, the people like that. And it's all around a guy called Udi Wertheimer and I think Eric Wall and, and a bunch of other people. And they really want to bring, I think, things like DeFi, things like NFTs and, and other sort of innovations from the Ethereum ecosystem over to Bitcoin. They will bring layer twos, they will bring rollups, they will bring all the good stuff that made Ethereum pump in the last couple of bull markets. And um, I think they are serious about it and they will they will succeed. Um, and so I do see a couple of scenarios where Bitcoin could get there pretty quickly. So I think it's wise to to ramp up on Bitcoins uh, at the moment. Not financial advice. <laughs> Not financial. You know, I, I, I over time, you know, you, you start to look, you kind of look back and I've done so many interviews, you know, close to 200 you know, podcasts and interviews and everything else that I've done over the last few years. Um, and, and you start to think back to the people that, that made their predictions and, and, you know, who was right and who was wrong. And I, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and give the, the one person credit that I think was the most right, which is Corey Klipstein, uh, with Swan, Swan Bitcoin. He runs swan.com. Um, and he just goes, it doesn't matter. You just buy it every day. Don't ever sell it. Just, just if you want to spend $10 a day, $20 a day, $50 a day, just, just start accumulating because we're so early in the cycle that, you know, we don't know what the use case is. We don't know where it's going to be. Um, and, and looking at where everything was from the last bull to bear rush, um, you know, if you'd had a consistent amount, you know, a daily amount or a weekly amount over the last, you know, three years, you'd, you'd be up today more than you'd, more than you'd be down from just doing the, the random, you know, pump and dump trading that most people do. So I think it's, it showcases how early in the cycle we are. Uh, Ordinals has showcased that there are new uses for the Bitcoin chain and that proof of work is still very, very valuable uh, to, to the financial world. And, and, you know, we don't know, there is no winner yet. There is no global adoption in any way, shape or form. All right, last one, and uh, this is this is a good one for us. Um, so, Web three developers left in mass over the last twelve months. I think we can say, yeah, <laughs> of course they did. Um, it went from you know being t in, and Jeffrey, you can speak about this at length. It went from being an overfunded asset class uh, to capital just quite simply drying out. Uh, we interacted with you know dozens and dozens and dozens of development teams that really had you know nothing other than they could deploy a small. A smart contract uh, that they were copying and pasting off GitHub. Um, you know, very little nuances. You know, there was a gazillion good zillion development teams that were, you know, hey, I'll, I'll make you NFTs. I'll do sort so many things. Um, 
but the real innovation, the real building, like those, I don't believe that those people have left to you. I think, yeah, I, I would say, I would agree with you, Jay. I think that the folks that really see the long-term potential of the ecosystem are still here. I think that what you have are developers that might have more of a mercenary or more of a, you know, very much a, you know, I want to generate as much personal income revenue as possible going to other, you know, fields to hone their craft. And so specifically AI, right? There was an interesting data point that I saw in terms of the average funding for developers in AI was somewhere between, you know, 450K all the way to 925K for an open AI, AI developer, right? And so if I'm making a trade-off and I'm a purely economic animal and I'm looking at you know, Web3 as a potential career path, but I don't really believe in the vision. And I'm I'm looking at AI and I'm kind of weighing those two options in front of myself. In those cases, I'm sure that certain folks would probably lean in the AI direction, at least in the near term. But then again, AI is only used to enable or further augment existing industries anyway, which includes Web3. So it's a question of, you know, trade-offs near-term, long-term, and whether or not there there is conviction and division for the Web3 ecosystem. The other point that I always I picked up from the article as well is that there's almost 8,000 developers that had only got into Web3 just within the last 12 months. So that's not stickiness. That's not people who are dedicated to space, just as Jeffrey was just speaking. This, this, this is people who are moving according to where the best opportunities are. Um, so that's why I think, you know, this is, I'm not too surprised by this. I think it's just an indication of where we are in the market. Um, and I, I think there might be a merger between the AI and the Web3 space. So it's... I would be interested to see how many new developers are coming in just in the general space of being a developer as well. Is that still a career path by, by, you know, early entrance into, into people who are coming into the working world? Yeah. Florian, I mean, you're, you, you are, you know, heavily into the development community. You're traveling around quite a bit. Are are you seeing, you know, people just suddenly disappear and run over to AI or, or do the, the committed ones still sticking around? Um, well, what I see is that um, even the committed ones are really interested in exploring AI, right? Because AI is the shiny new tool. It's a lot of fun. It's become extremely accessible. Uh, even Vitalik recently made a tweet, I think, on Farcaster about the similarities of cryptographic methods used in blockchain and used in AI, right? And um uh, for uh, Martin Koppelmann, uh, who is the founder of Gnosis, uh, absolute, you know, cornerstone of crypto. He, he will never leave the space. He's a deep, deep believer. He's recently made a tweet saying, hey, um, should we uh, should we try to build a prediction market now that we have AI? Because we can use AI bots to do these prediction bets and 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 sort of, you know, find uh you know interesting things to bet on and so on and and, and uh, i don't know other use cases he has in mind for ai and, and gnosis famously did their ico in 2016 for prediction markets which didn't turn out to become a thing and now they are building multi and, and and other things right so it has a history with him and so i think everybody is currently experimenting with ai and it makes complete sense because it will enhance probably every single thing uh, that we're going to sure. do. Um, for example, now um, there is a lot of people. Paradigm, this big VC, made a made a blog post on it um, uh, recently called "Intent-Based Architectures for Crypto." So the idea that actually 
we're changing the way we're doing transactions in crypto from imperative to declarative, just stating an intent. Hey, I want to swap that asset against this other asset. And I don't care how it's happening. Just make it happen uh, in a sort of best execute with the best execution, you know, promise something like this. And now we see actually companies um, using AI as part of the process to build an intent-based architecture for crypto. So it's already, I think, you know, flowing into the the foundational concept of of how blockchain is going to work, the application, how they're going to work. So um, yeah, but even at Common Ground, uh, where we're building a, a Web three, you know, focused uh, communication platform. We have a lot of ideas of how AI can actually help communities to, you know, be better at governance, be better at at community building, retention of people and and, and, and things like this. So I'm not at all afraid of the competition of AI. Um, I'm not surprised that a bunch of people that joined Web3, you know, just when the market crashed are now going somewhere else. I, I wouldn't blame them. But uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I have no concerns. I actually think AI is a great addition to the whole I, sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, I, I love, and I, what I really like about this is the thought of <clears throat> you have a bunch of people, whether they were good developers or, or just you know uh, uh, copy, you know. Um, copying and pasting code and around, but they understand blockchain. And as they move into AI and they have to work with large data sets and they have to figure out storage and security and, and, you know, the ability that, that, that there's a better chance now that we'll see this, this iteration of web three truly embracing and incorporating AI through things like token gating and, and, and a variety of others, um, which would really kind of bring us forward. And I think it goes back to, you know, things like, you know, uh, metaverse gaming, uh, you know, uh, blockchain based gaming and, and really, that's the entire goal is like cryptocurrencies is just like that, that first use case. It was the beanie babies of eBay. It's like, Hey, this works. People are interested in it. We're able to kind of create a market based on it, but that's cryptocurrencies is not blockchain. Um, you know, the concept of blockchain and smart contracts and, and self custody and, and all these other things, um, you know, that's really what we need. And, and the more developers that understand blockchain and then go out into other, you know, into other asset classes. Um, I, I think that's, that's really the big win here uh, in the way that I look at it. All right, guys, uh, that's our hour. It's been absolutely fabulous to have you. I appreciate uh, the, all the questions, comments, and, and uh, insights that you provided today. Uh, YWales, this is uh, episode two of YWeb3 and uh, Frontier Tech. Uh, we're excited to have you. And uh, please comment in uh, all, the, all the various areas for articles you want us to review next time. We'll see you next week. YWales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. YWales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.